You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Ron Gutman. He is an inventor, an investor, a serial technology and healthcare entrepreneur, and a Stanford University adjunct professor. Ron has built and invested in technology and healthcare companies that have served hundreds of millions of people and saved tens of thousands of lives worldwide. He's an inventor holding a series of patents in healthcare technology and artificial intelligence and won the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Award. Ron's mission is to help everyone live happier, healthier, longer lives. On today's show, we talk about how did you come up with the topic for your TED Talk, The Hidden Power of Smiling? Do you live by the model Smiling Today? What factors do you consider when determining the structure and design of a supply chain? How is it different scaling up a company that has had a massive funding event versus growing a company without any external funding? What is the antidote to blitzscaling? And in the current environment, does blitzscaling make sense? And what are the best ways that entrepreneurs and startups can achieve hypergrowth today without making huge structural, financial, and in some cases, ethical mistakes in the process, and much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Ron, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. You've had an extensive career. In fact, the career is so long that, well, prepping for this, it was, okay, we're gonna have to leave out all these accomplishments because we gotta get to the meat and potatoes. But you know, I've learned a lot about you, but for our audience, can you give an intro to your career up into this point before diving into the questions? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Love, love the podcast. Think what, what thing you're doing is amazing. And uh, I'm humbled to be here and excited to have this conversation with you. So thank you. And the, being back in the Valley after years of being away and coming and visiting and seeing the people, seeing the good friends that I made here over many years, it's a great, it's a great reminder of where I'm coming from. And I think Silicon Valley for me has been an amazing journey, right, of, of initially learning the whole idea of how to build value in the world. And I want to give a huge amount of kudos to Stanford University that had a huge opportunity to be part of as a student and, and learn really the, the, the basics and the, the fundamental research that exists at Stanford in, in really creating value in the world and, and, and changing people, changing organization, and eventually changing the world. And, and I think of the view that exists here in the Valley that comes from Stanford University in many ways that you can change the world. It's possible to do amazing things, right? And you need to dream it. And the environment will give you an opportunity to not only create it, but find the right people because you can't do anything alone, right? So, but really Stanford and the value as an extension is great at, is bringing people together, bringing great minds to, to think about challenges in the world and how to solve them. And I think that this is what I learned uh, initially at school and then through the, an entrepreneurship career that, that just started with like problems that we love solving, right? like the idea of the, and health was a big passion from the very beginning, but and that's the common thread of my, on my entire career, starting from what I did in school, learning how to create value with technology, right? But technology is just a, like what I learned in school, because I came just being in love with technology for the sake of technology, right? But learning how to take basically technology and apply it as a tool 
to solve real, real world problems, not just create amazing video games and, and entertainment and, and stuff that are fun for kids when they're growing up, and, and, which is great. You just do, make your first step in, in a world uh, of computing that was back then nascent, right? And seeing what's possible to do in the world of entertainment and gaming. But then start getting and saying, what, what can we do with this amazing machine when we start applying it to real world problems? And I think that this is what I, uh, real world challenges, right? In the platform. But I think that that's the thing that my career is paved with, right? So really starting to solve uh, more and more challenges around health and well being, which has been a big passion of mine. Starting in, like at Stanford University with the Be Well at Stanford program, that we had a huge opportunity that the university gave us to really implement a population engagement program for the entire university staff, faculty, and students of engaging them with technology around health and well-being. And that was in the early days of computing, and of personal computing, and cell phones. I mean, we're talking flip phones. We're not talking, we're not talking like iPhones. And the computing power that we had was very limited. The connectivity was very limited. But start applying these things to get people more engaged in their health and well-being, regardless of where they are on the continuum, whether they're managing being well and feeling good, or they're managing a chronic condition, they are part of a population and learning how to do that. So that was a great experience beyond education at Stanford to really get your feet and hands wet into like creation of something that we iterated on and eventually, after a lot of learning, became one of the most successful population engagement programs nationwide, right? And, and I think that was a, a, an initial step that was very important. And then going out into industry and start like really building companies that were solving all the way from engaging people in their health and well-being, right? So getting them more engaged in managing health and well-being to eventually building the infrastructure of, of healthcare and powering all the way from large uh, insurance companies and hospitals and providers and, and payers and, and employers and, and everybody who manages population health, right? But you have to start with things that are pretty basic, right? In order to get to building infrastructure to some of the world's largest insurance companies and providers, and everything in between. And eventually to get to the point where when the pandemic hit, right, and we got a big challenge that the world faced in health and well-being, and we had to provide a solution very quickly, we had all the tools that we needed and the experience that we needed to go very quickly, take the right kind of approach, build the right kind of infrastructure, create the right kind of solution. When we built ongo, when we built the intervention that were required, when we were able to approach the FDA run the testing very efficiently, create products that were really high quality, but also compliant, right? And, and, and able to overcome a lot of challenges in, in supply chains, in, in communications, and people not, not being at work, and all of these things, and still create a solution that eventually served more than 100 million people, right? So, and, and that's unique, right? But that's not, that's what, what I, the, the sentence that I heard that was, that was most, most applicable there was, it was 20 years long instant success, <laughs> right? So it took this entire trajectory and a lot of learning and a lot of mistakes and a lot of what I call now success and learning. So you, you succeed or you don't succeed, but you actually learn something new and the iterative process to get to the point where we needed to really perform really quickly in a very high scale and, and really save a lot of lives and a lot of, a lot, add a lot of value in people's life. We were ready, right? We were ready to actually solve this thing and help so many people so quickly. It was part of getting ready for that. So there's a lot there right. to unpack right. from the journey at Stanford to 20 years in the health tech to 
building a product that's saved hundreds of millions of lives. So let's unpack that a little bit. But I also want, and I, and I think the audience might really enjoy this, is well, one, your profession's health and wellness, but personally, you really do practice it. Could you talk about your morning routine a little bit for our audience out there and how a busy person like yourself is still able to allocate time and resources to health and wellness? Sure. And it's not able. It's, I, I think it's an enabler. Actually, if you ask me why I'm able to do all the other things that I'm doing, and I, I build companies, I invest in companies, I write, I, I teach, I, I do a lot of things that I love doing. And I do that because of this morning routine. And I think that it's almost a must. You have, I believe that to, to become a, a successful in life, and it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a mom of a family or you are, you're just a great professional doing whatever you're doing, working for a big company, it doesn't matter. You need to have a, an athlete mindset, right? You need to think like an athlete, right? You need to think like somebody who really wants to excel and get the mo most out of life. And to do that, you need to start with the basics. Like what is your health and well-being, right? And that comes with mind and body. And you need to start with the body because the box fits everything and needs to have everything that it needs in order to tackle the challenges that life you know, provides you. And I really believe that waking up every single morning, and the first thing that I do is I go and drink a glass of water put my running shoes, which by the way, I continue wearing all, all day long. It's still have my running shoes on right now, right? And go run. There's nothing in between me and waking up in the morning and going for a run, but a glass of water, right? So, and that, when, when I think about the framework that I learned from my friend and mentor, BJ Fogg, uh, with whom I taught a class at Stanford uh, eventually about motivation, ability, and prompt which are the three ways to create a habit, and my morning routine is a habit. I had the motivation because I wanted to be successful in what I'm doing. Uh, I had the ability because now I have the running shoes and I have the environment, and now I, I live by the water, so I like running on the beach. So it's kind of, for me, it's very you know, motivating to know that I'm going to be on the sand very soon having my morning run. It's very motivating, right? So I have the ability, I have everything that I need in order to do that, and I have the prompt. And my prompt, is waking up in the morning, right? Because there's nothing in between waking up in the morning and running. So I go run every single morning. I finish my run. I go do some strength training. So I have a little bit of a routine and different days, different muscle groups because I want to make sure that my entire body is engaged in what I'm doing. Uh, and then when I'm done with that, I do stretching, which is very important. Some people love stretching also before the run. Depends. I don't. I actually stretch after, right? When I'm done with my routine. And then I meditate for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, right? And that's how I convinced myself to start meditating a few years ago. That was the last thing that I added to my routine in the morning is meditation. And I said, I can afford 10 minutes at the end of the workout. But once again, I had the motivation because I wanted to not only deal with my body, I wanted to deal with my mind as well, because I think that being successful and having an athlete mindset is not just what you do with your body. It's also what you do with your mind, right? So in meditation, I heard from many people can help you actually do that. So I had the motivation to do that. The ability to do it was helped by Sam Harris, who has a great app that's called Waking Up. And I'm really happy that a good friend of mine introduced me to Waking Up because Sam is doing an amazing job in creating a daily meditation that is short, it's concise, it's thoughtful, and it's easy to do, right? So that helped me with the ability because I didn't know anything about meditation. I didn't have time to 
go and study meditation and do, do all of these things. But the app gave me everything that I needed and the prompt, which is the end of my workout, right? So it's the map methodology of motivation, ability, and prompt that closed my morning routine. So it works. So the morning routine, have you ever missed a day? Would you add to it? Would you subtract to it overall? I try not to miss days. And if I do in the rare occasion that I need to fly, then I have a flight that kind of it's an overnight flight that I start here during the day, then it's night, then it's night when I land again. So I run and I, when I run in, even in peculiar times sometimes, and even if I slept a couple of hours a night, I still going to go and run. Because if not, my, I, I actually feel lethargic the day after. Like my body needs it at this point. It, I'm so used to it right now that it's, it's like part of who I am. So in the rare occasion that I do have these flights, I will feel it, right? And, and so I try to avoid it. And even short nights or odd hours if I'm on the road and, and things like that, I, I will always have the, this routine and it's very comforting. It, it gives my body the signal that the day starts. Our listeners, a lot of them founded companies, growing them. How important do you think is meditation or exercise to their success? Critical. I, I really think the, the, the athlete mindset and the ability to do it, it's an enabler. It keeps you clear. I mean, again, from a life optimization perspective, it keeps you clear. It keeps you motivated, right? There's a lot of physiological and psychological uh, reasons of why this is true, but it, it really conditions you to be able to deal with a lot of things in life. It gives you the energy to do it. It gives you the resilience to, to overcome things, the clarity that you need in order to do these things. And meditation, more than anything else, which is the last thing that I added most recently, a few years ago, helps me really be in control of my mind. I, I used to think that, well, I, I decide what I'm doing, right? And meditating made me understand that I'm actually reacting to what's happening in reality. I'm reacting to emails, to texts, to this crisis, that crisis. And when I start meditating, I learn how to take a step back and look at things as a bystander almost and understand that like, things are happening, but my consciousness is independent of that. It's always there. It's always clear. And I always can go back to the basics and then look at reality as someone who has control over reality rather than reality that controls me. And that changed everything. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I know it sounds a little bit new agey and everything saying that meditation changed my life, but it did, right? And, and I think it, and it's surprisingly so. It did in, in a very profound way. So I really encourage people to take 10 minutes or even five minutes of their day every day and start doing it. Very low impact but a huge amount of impact on your life, positive impact on your life. So for our audience that's watching the video on, on YouTube right now, you're seeing how Ron smiles this entire time. For the audience <laughs> listening on the podcast, well, question, Ron, in your background, you also TEDx speaker. You have a speech smile that has, I'm not even sure the number of views. It was going up while I was watching it. Can you tell a little bit about your involvement with TEDx? Because you, from my understanding, have the Silicon Valley chapter. So, well, it was a TED talk, not a TEDx talk. The Smiling Talk was a TED talk in the main TED event. And it's a, a huge opportunity that I got from, from TED to, to give that talk. And they eventually published my book as well. And, and it was wonderful because I, I was doing research on smiling. I was very interested in smiling because I've been told just like you that I'm a smiler. So I always wanted to know where it's coming from. So, and so I started doing research into it. And the more I researched into it, the more I realized that it's a very interesting discipline. Right, it, it, all the way from sociology to psychology to neuroscience to, to anthropology, there's so much in smiling because it's one of the most common traits of humans, right? And, and, and something that we, we all share, it's very important for our evolution and how we interact with one another and how we conduct our lives. It's very ingrained in us as a species. 
and it was fascinating. And I shared that with, with the folks at TED and with Chris Anderson when back then. And, and it was, and it said, oh, they said, well, this is a great idea. Why, why don't you give a talk about it? And the talk went well. Just like you said, I mean, it became very popular very quickly. People loved it. And because it was simple. It was just digging deep into the basics and the fundamental of why smiling is great for you and why it's so easy. And not only that, not only what it's great for you. And I think that was the big people, big aha moment. It's great for you, but it's great for everybody around you. It's actually because smiling is evolutionarily contagious. When you smile, other people around you smile, right? And I think it's a very easy way to get into a room and change the entire room, right? Because you you come with your energy and you make everybody else's energy change. And it doesn't matter how corporate or stiff or serious or environment is, or even going to places where people don't speak your language at all. And I traveled around the world and I traveled in 89 countries. Right, like I, I always in places that people didn't speak my language at all. I walk into a room and I just break the ice in like 15 seconds by just big smile and then see like what you're doing right now. Everybody is okay, it's great. We can connect on something that's very easy to connect over, right? So it's a very powerful notion. And Ted gave me an opportunity to, to really give me a stage to first do it with the Tedsters, uh, Ted itself. And then after that, the book that came up after that and that luckily became a success as well. Is there any correlation between, saw in your TED talk, I thought it was fascinating, the baseball players and the ones that had pictures <laughs> of their smile and how long they lived. Are there any studies done with corporate culture and smiling and maybe the success of that company? Yeah. So we're working on the new book and you're asking the right kind of questions because it's been more than 10 years since the previous edition came out. And then we're working actually on, I just got the right back and we're working on the next generation of the book. So you'll get the scoop on that one. So in, in that one, there's actually some very interesting new studies that we're adding that I'm, I'm not going to tell yet, but I promise you that I'm going to come to the, to the podcast just before we, we launch the book and, and share with you some, some of these things. But yes, they, they are, there, there are studies that are correlating or, or showing the, the, cor- the strong correlation uh, between people who smile and, and the amount of money they earn. The amount of money they, they, they I'm not sorry, the amount of respect that they're getting, right? Because a lot of time people are told when they're growing up, don't smile too much because people will respect you less because people will respect people who are more serious. That's empirically not true. Is right? that cultural base or is that a? I, I don't know. It's like, oh, a myth. I, it's like an urban book, myth, right? It's an urban <laughs> myth that, they, that science has debunked, right? I think that people that smile more actually appear to be more competent interestingly enough, right? And, and these are strong scientific studies, right? So, so I think that like the idea that smiling is childish, yes, children smile more than adults, but I think it's because we're losing something as adults, not because we're gaining something as adults. It affects the reward mechanism and the frontal lobe of your brain, right? So by smiling, you feel better. You, people see that you feel better. And I really believe that you take this energy and because it's contagious, you bring it to others, right? And then people appreciate you because you bring them the same joy that you have, you actually provide to them. So they want to reward you for that. They, they want to give you more business. They want to be in your presence more, right? And I think that these are things that are very easy to do, right? So I want everybody to use them as much as possible. So speaking of smiling, during, and trust me, I'm setting it up for it. During the pandemic, you built this company. I'm sure you're super happy when you're able to raise a bunch of money from it. What was that journey like building that company then? Because I'm going to follow up with a question on your current company about building a company without taking any outside funding. So could you talk about how happy that was, but the journey of building that company? 
Well, so you're talking about Intrivo and OnGo versus companies that we built before, right? Companies that I built before, did I did raise money, a significant amount of money for, for, for some of them. And look, I think that there's there's a, a place and a, and, and, a, and a situation for each and every one of these approaches. I think that there's some situation in which raising money makes sense, right? And I think that when we're talking, talking about taking long bets that are creating fundamental technologies that are, that are really like part of it is there's a research component to it and there's a high risk of getting to something that is that doesn't exist yet getting some capital at the very beginning that that enables you to get from idea to something that is viable sometimes makes perfect sense and i did that for a while although it has its baggage right when you start bringing more people start taking money you need to be very thoughtful who you're bringing with you to, to the game because sometimes it's helpful and some of the people that will fund you will give you a lot of support and some, sometimes it's harmful, right? So you need to be very mindful about who you're bringing with you to the game, but there's always more ideas and more thoughts around the table and how to run things. So you're leaving on behind some independence. Now, if it doesn't matter, that's okay. And I believe in the fact that if you have a lot of great people around you, they'll add more value to you because they'll share their opinion as long as they believe in working together toward a certain direction rather than hindering it, right? So it's a good thing. But sometimes if you believe in what you're doing and you have the expertise and the experience to do what you're doing, the best thing to do is focus on the target of what you're trying to accomplish. Because if you have the right idea and you have the right timing, and the market is big enough and you can execute, you're going to get very quickly to the point that the market is rewarding you with value. And this value, if it's created fast enough, will give you a lot of independence to continue doing what you do best and to continue growing this way with very few strings attached, right? So, and that has value, especially in fast-changing environments, in environments that require decision-making that is quickly and non-traditional, right? When we were sitting on a junction with Intrivo and with Ongo, making a decision going from, we had some good success with the testing that was more like, like when you went into a, to a on-site testing, right? To a clinic or to a testing site. And there were the early, the initial generation, sorry, the first generation of testing was actually to go to a clinic and get tested, right? And it was not at home, you had to wait in line and like it took a lot of time and it was expensive and it was this thing that they stuck in your nose. For the audience, you're talking about beginning the pandemic, the test there versus your solution, just right. in case people weren't, weren't 100% sure yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So early on in the pandemic, right, we had basically testing that was done on site, right? You had to go to a testing station, you had to wait in line, you had to, with a lot of other people that probably had the, the condition, somebody had stuck this very long thing in your nose, you had to wait after that for a day or two until you got the results, it was very expensive, all these kind of things, right? So that was the first generation, right? And then there was an opportunity which we worked really hard on, because that was, I thought that was a terrible user experience, right? So, and, and I, I'm all into user experience, so I said, can we bring this thing at home? Can we make it rapid? Can we make it something that people can actually use en masse? Because even from a from an individual perspective, that's a lot of value. But from a public health perspective, it's a huge amount of value if a lot of people get tested and we saw that. And as we were working to bring this at-home test to, to market, and by the way, it not only just building the test, creating it, building the, the technology platform, it also required FDA approval. I mean, this is in, in real time, which usually takes a very long time to do. So we're working on this thing and all of a sudden the vaccine comes in right at the beginning of 2021. It was amazing. So, and what happened at that point is everybody's, okay, that's it. The pandemic is over. I don't know if you remember, but everybody's, oh, we don't need tests anymore because we have vaccines. So, and Abbott Laboratories, it's all over the news, decides to basically shut down its main factory, let go 2,000 people, burn down God knows how many billions of dollars worth of tests, like literally get rid of them because 
that the pandemic is over. And sitting on that junction, I still remember the conversation. I was very convinced talking with the experts, so the same people that taught me a lot about the science behind the pandemic, some great people at Stanford, Gary Skolnick, and others that I learned from a lot about the pandemic. And I went to some of these experts afterwards, and I asked, really, what do you think? And they told me the pandemic is far from being over. We hosted Toby Cosgrove in our class in the late 2020 at Stanford and asked him about the pandemic. Toby Cosgrove is the legendary CEO of the the Cleveland Clinic. And he's a doctor and a surgeon and and very well respected in the community. Like in many years, he was advisor to presidents of the United States, like really respected guy. And late in, in 2020, Toby said, it's going to be with us for life. I mean, COVID is not going anywhere, right? And these guys are sitting on a junction where everybody is like saying the pandemic is over, we're closing all of testing, and we need to make a decision of what to do. Now, we made a very clear decision. I was very keen on saying, no, it's not going to be over, and we're going to see more waves of the pandemic. We need to double down, invest in in technology, invest in, in really creating delightful user experience of rapid testing that people can do at home in like minutes, right? And get the result. It needs to be affordable. It needs to be a lot cheaper than it is right now and all of these things. Well, everybody else is closing factories, right? And, and shutting down stuff. And I think that if you, at that point, if you have too many advisors and investors and people that have all, all kinds of things to say, it's very easy to just decide to just maybe pivot. That was very fashionable back then to pivot and do something else. And we said, no, we're going there. And it was important. And that made a huge difference for the company, right? That put us in a position that when everybody had no tests, we were there, you know, working with federal government, state government, all the retailers, right? Like the corporations and everybody. And we were supplying to all of them tests because we made the right decision to go and continue producing tests and get to market with Ongo, which was then the number one test in the market, right? So, and I think I attribute that to having the independence, to making a decision that was non-traditional decision against the grain and, and being right, right? It's like my dad used to say, it's great to be a contrarian as long as you're right. I like that saying. I think I'm going to use that. One question there, I mean, going from zero to, I'm guessing hundreds of millions or tens of millions of tests, how did you build out that supply chain in such a short amount of time? That time in the world where every all the supply chains were shut down everywhere. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot about partnerships, right? So a lot about doing, making the right kind of partnerships. And I think that's the key for building, for blitzscaling, for building businesses really quickly, really well, is you can never do it by yourself, right? You need to have the right kind of team, first and foremost, so hiring the right kind of people that had the right kind of mindset and skills and experience. And it's not about building a big team. It's building the right kind of team, right? That had the right kind of understanding of how to do these things, came from companies that solved these problems before, understood how to do things and worked really well together and were super motivated. So that's one. The second thing is really think like a technology company. Right? We were not thinking of as a solution company, as a product company. We we're thinking about as a technology company. How we coordinate a full supply chain, sometimes in things that we provide because we're good at, but also go with a bunch of partners who are excellent in what they're doing, but use our technology to tie it all together. Right? Use the ability to, to actually organize everything, coordinate facilitate, make sure that all the things are working together really well, just like Apple does. It's basically taking a page from Apple's from Apple's book, right? And, and thinking about we design, we create the experiences, we build the underlying systems, but then we, we choose the right partners very carefully, right? And we make sure that it's compatible and then make sure that we are iterating very rapidly to orchestrate this supply chain that goes all the way from sourcing the tests, right? And working with the right partner, making sure that they're the highest quality 
right? Because it's not about just like partnering with them, like making sure that they're producing it right, that they're creating the right kind of solutions, building the brand. It was extremely important, right? Like building a brand that people trust, right? That was extremely important as well, because you need to build trust with, with consumers. You need to build trust with buyers, right? Along the way. And then creating a seamless supply chain that works when everything else fails, right? Like think about what can fail in advance and start putting in checks and balances in place to make sure that the entire thing works seamlessly. And knock on wood, it worked and it worked really well. For that whole supply chain, where were the problems and hiccups or I guess overall, how important was it to be very adaptable, very flexible throughout that time? Thank you. You, you, answer, you asked the question and answered it in, in, in a great way. I mean, of course there are hiccups. I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, you're building something that other companies take sometimes decades to build and you're building it in months or in weeks and months. Of course, there will be hiccups. And, and, and that the idea of measurement, I mean, I, I'm very keen on putting in place the right kind of data analytic tools that will allow you to identify very quickly when something is not working the way it is and have the ability to go very quickly with some of the best engineers in the world to fix this thing and have the right kind of partners with the right kind of agreement and the right kind of mindset to iterate very quickly to get to a solution there. Because there are hiccups and they're inevitable. They're a part of the process. You need to create initially a culture of what I call success and learning. We actually had a name for the culture, which is called success and learning. So only two modes in my world, right? It's either you succeed or something didn't work. Yeah, as long as you learn from it, it's success because you, next time you're not going to make the mistake again. The only way to make to fail with me is make mistake, the same mistake twice. That, that's the only way to fail. If you make new mistakes all the time, you're just learning all the time. But this culture makes people comfortable, keep executing, knowing that some things were not going to work the way they are, but we're going to fix them really quickly. And having the culture also be in a, a, created in a way that people want to fix things quickly, are motivated to, to fix things quickly, right? And to get to the point that like, we use the, the data analytics and see that it's where we benchmarked it to be. And that then things work really well. So for that, you kept mentioning over quickly. Right. <laughs> for that situation, and there had to have been a lot of outside capital. But going back to the idea of blitzscaling versus not taking the outside capital, what is the antidote to blitzscaling? What, is the, what are the possibilities? Or is it only you have to take outside money to scale? You don't have to know. It's, it's, the question of outside capital depends on how much the resources that you have in front of you are capital intensive and how it's a testament also to your ability to create deals with partners that where everybody benefits from, right? If you can create a win situation with a partner that sees the opportunity, believes in you, wants to work together with you, they're not going to necessarily require the capital in advance, right? It's hard to do, especially when you're an asset company, to go and look into some of these like big partners and say, no, you need to believe that what we're doing is right. And the ability to communicate why what you're doing is do going well, the ability to instill trust, that's why I'm saying it's like it was a it was an exercise of building trust, right? In the, in what, from what we did in the past, from what we're doing right now, really build trust very quickly to actually be able to leverage some resources from outside and saying, you're going to make a tremendous amount of money out of this, but you need to bear with me for one more step. And these are negotiations that need to happen because the easy way out is just buy what they're selling, right? And then pay them a bunch of money to do what they need to do. And then that's going to be fine. But then you need to really spend a lot of time raising money. And especially in the time of pandemic, 
when everything is basically coming to a halt, raising money takes time, right? Convincing, so you need to, instead of convincing your partner, you need to convince the funder. Now, if money is available and it's readily available and it's inexpensive and it happened quickly enough and you feel that some of the things that you're doing require that, yeah, go ahead and do it, right? But money is expensive, it's highly dilutive, it's very in, inter, like invasive, right? And you have the ability to build trust with partners. I think that the latter is much better and also will keep you much closer to what's important, which is solving the problem. Because when you work with the partners, right, with, when you work with the team and you start becoming creative about how to solve things in a scarce resource, it's the mother of all creativity. It's the need, it's the mother of all creativity. Because then you need to do it and you need to do it with scarce resources. It pushes you to think more creatively about how to solve the problem. Because money, will just kind of throwing money at something is just going to solve it, but it, you're not really solving it to, to, to the depth of it. You're like almost like glossing over the problem itself. It will help you understand the problem a lot better. So for taking money, then should people all maybe situation-based, should they almost put themselves in a situation where they will always be struggling for capital? I think that, I think that this is, it's very good to be in a situation that you are somewhat hungry all the time. I mean, Steve Jobs in my graduation Ended my the graduation speech. Yeah, was yeah. that the I, famous I, speech? Yeah, that was my graduation from Stanford. Wow. So, so he, he said at the end of the graduation speech, in his commencement speech, he said his advice to all of us was stay hungry, stay foolish. That was the two, it was the, the slogan from the All Earth, All Earth catalog. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, he was referring to something that was kind of a Silicon Valley thing from before, but that doesn't matter. But he said, he said stay hungry, stay foolish, right? And I think like staying hungry, is important. There's something about staying hungry that, that lights up the creativity and the need to solve things very fundamentally. But I say, even if you're not pushing yourself to stay hungry and you're bringing resources inside, bring people that are creative, right? If you, are decide, if you decide to bring investors and you are bringing capital inside, bring it with people that will help you solve many other problems. Because it's not about the additional dollar that comes in, it's the additional brain or additional set of really strong hands that will help you do not only, okay, I need some capital to lubricate some things that I need, which sometimes is helpful, it helps things to move faster and things like that. But I also have another great brain with me that will help do a lot more things. So I think that it's sometimes there's a place for capital bring smart and devoted and committed capital. So my next question, I think you might have already answered it with the Steve Jobs commencement speech, but your thoughts behind the quote, you shouldn't grow and lead thinking at all, which has often been a downfall of Silicon Valley. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's very, especially when you're surrounded by really smart people, which the Valley has been blessed with, you get something to the point that people get to the, I mean, to do things and they're smart and things work pretty well. And, and it's very easy to get into this vicious cycle of, okay, now I, I know how to get things done. And, you know, the more I know, the more I know less, right? So it's very important to stay humble, right? At the end of the day, because the, the, the world will prove you human eventually, right? And I think that the, the idea of saying, I know certain things, but there's always something else to learn right? There's always something else to improve in. There's almost always another perspective that can add value to what we're doing. I, I created, uh, together with uh, Neil Chima at Stanford University, we created a, um, a framework, a uh, leadership framework that's called Sapient Leadership. And, and we're teaching Sapient Leadership. And, and it was the, the foundation of a course that we created in, in a Harvard Business Review article that we wrote that is around the topic of Sapient Leadership. And Sapient Leadership is, is based on the notion of listening. 
of learning. Of everybody around you has input that can make you better as a leader, right? And you need to listen. That doesn't mean that you need to do leadership by committee. It doesn't mean that you need to bring everything to a vote. That's not what sapient leadership is all about. But the best leaders who lead greatly through change are the ones that listen carefully to people around them. And it doesn't matter if it's employees or supporters or advisors or investors or people in the community. Everybody has something to say. And even if it sounds a bit strange at the beginning, if you pause for a second and listen, and again, if you're surrounded by the right people, everybody is trying to help, right? And if you create around yourself an environment that is psychologically safe, right? You create the psychologically psychological safety for people to express what they think, especially when they disagree with you, especially when they disagree with you, right? You open yourself to an opportunity to grow all the time. Now, sometimes you'll be right. And sometimes the advice that they give or the thoughts that they have are not exactly congruent. And sometimes they are wrong, right? And it's okay to Sometimes say, I looked, I listened, it's okay, I still go the same way because I distilled it all and still I feel that I'm in the right place. But sometimes you'll have this, wow, (laughs) I didn't think about that. And I think that it's super important. And this humility, and we talk about this thing, is one of the most important traits of extremely successful leaders, particularly ones that lead through change, right? Because their ability to see something that is in their blind spot, right? Because even if you're smart, even if you're capable, there's there's gonna be something in your blind spot that you're not seeing and somebody will see that you're not seeing. So listening will cause you to do this a little bit and say, oh, I missed that. So that's a huge opportunity. So thinking of everything is the best way to, to fail eventually. All right. So listen and smile while listening. <laughs> Speaking of listening, well, one thing that's in the news all the time right, right now, artificial intelligence, AI, listening to everything, analyzing everything. How do you look at AI when it comes to medical technology? Yeah. So, so I think that AI is changing the world in, in a very profound way. And I think that we, years ago when we launched Dr. AI in a previous company that I, I started with the, with the ambition to basically help people understand you know, what they have and what to do, but the best thing to do about it was from that premise, right? Like of, of really helping people make decisions, better decisions about their health and well-being. Now we have doctors and I think doctors are extremely important in the process uh, of, of helping people improve their health and well-being and they're knowledgeable and educated and we need to continue trusting doctors. Where we are in the evolution is still, we are not yet at the point where we are ready to hand off everything to, to AIs and, and when it comes to health and well-being. It will take some time to get there. We will get there, but it will take some time. So we need to continue trusting doctors. Having said that, improving the system that enables us to actually empower doctors to make better decisions initially, because a lot of understanding of what people have and what's the best way to deal with that comes from analyzing a variety of data points and taking them all into account, but also taking into account data points that are not uh, not always visible to the doctor or taking into account data point that maybe the particular doctor doesn't have expertise in, right? So the doctor himself or herself has a limited set of data that they are dealing with and a limited set of knowledge that they're limited to when they apply their knowledge to help you understand what you have, what you should do about it, how you should handle things, right? They're great, even if they're great doctors, right? Even if specialized in certain things. Uh, What AI can help us do is take the collective knowledge of medicine, of healthcare, of all doctors, of all researchers, and start distilling it to the things that happen to you, like to who you are in context, 
there are multiple dimensions here that are important. A is to, to understand what where medicine is in general, B to understanding you really well, and C to understanding context. Because all of these are moving parts all the time and the decisions are not linear. It's not, oh, I have this symptom and that symptom, therefore I have that. It's absolutely overly simplified. And the best doctors are the ones that are actually trying to see patterns rather than trying to see just isolated symptoms or things in time. Some the best doctors will actually look at you and try to see things, get cues from you or get data points from you. They're not, you're not, they're not verbalizing, you're not talking about, but still they are there. A great AI will take a lot more of the data points right into account and will put them in context, which is very difficult for a particular human being to do at any given point in time. And they'll compute the best way to handling the situation. But still, look, it all depends at the end of the day on the knowledge that we have, right? Because even the collective knowledge of all doctors and all of medicine is limited to what we were able to research and understand to date. Although what's really excited for me about AI, and if you start looking at some of the new technologies, I'm writing an article about it right now, the AI itself is helping us find new therapies, <laughs> right? That, that didn't exist before, right? So, so the idea of, of AlphaFold and the, the idea of like, how do we find the, the structure of proteins right now using a combination of humans and AIs is just amazing in my mind. So it's not just that the AIs help us understand what people have and how to deal with it. It helps us actually figure out what are the best therapeutics, right? So I think all of this will come together in a very powerful way eventually. We're on our way there and there's a lot of progress there, but it will take some time. So in the meanwhile, we still need to still work with doctors. Speaking of come together and taking resources from everywhere. You're also the founder of Live Long and Flourish Club. Can you talk about the organization and has there been any discoveries or any interest in things that have come about from it? Yes, definitely. So Live Long and Flourish or LLNF Club, I was founded at Stanford with a bunch of geeks. It was modeled after the- Everyone the, on my uh, podcast, right, so yes. Right. <laughs> it was, that we are, we try to pretend we're not, but we are. It was founded by a bunch of people that are really interested in life optimization, really amazingly eclectic group of people that had Stanford researchers, it had people from business, also investors and entrepreneurs and, and just thinkers and philosophers and like really doctors, practitioners, right? Really, really big, like large trainers, variety of people with different perspectives on health and well-being, right? And they're all very curious about finding what are the most cutting edge new interventions that exist to optimize health and well-being and then figure out if they're valid or not, right? So the idea of it's kind of like brainstorming and thinking and, and poking holes in all kinds of things that are new and new things and very promising to figure out what really has signal and what is mostly noise, right? And we decided to focus on four pillars, nutrition, physical activity, brain and mind, and risk management. Okay, so the first three, yes. The last one, I'm a little curious. Yeah, so, so what is the, one of the most effective longevity strategies that exists out there is surprisingly wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> I can show you empirically why it prolongs, why it will prolong your life to wear a seatbelt. I thought you were gonna say not getting eaten by a bear, but okay. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so it's very surprising. All these risk management strategies are very important for longevity. Right, like it, and it's like people are thinking about yeah, it's what you eat, what, what, how you, how much you exercise, do you meditate? Well, do you wear a seatbelt? Because that will have an impact on your longevity, like uh, from a population-adjusted perspective, right? And that's a very silly one, but there, there are a lot more other things. This is how we discovered COVID, by the way, in January of 2020. That's why I discovered a lot earlier than anything anybody else. Because of the group and yeah, the conversations, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, absolutely. Harry Sol introduced me to Gary Skolnick. Harry was what part of the group. 
And he said, you need to talk with Gary. Gary is a professor emeritus of infectious disease at Stanford. He's having a collaboration with Wuhan University and on something else. And he should tell you something that's happening in Wuhan right now. It, it has to do with risk management. And we brought him to the group. He gave a talk to the group. We brought up a bunch of other infectious disease specialists to have a conversation. And I wrote about it on Medium. And in February, of the beginning of February 2020, I wrote, we need to prepare. And everybody told me I'm a lunatic because it's just in China because it's never going to be big and or problematic. Or How many views did that Medium article I get? I have no idea. So, but the people who read it and some people that I talked with about it said that that's probably something that will affect China, but not us. Right. And, and uh, the, the whole thing there was that was written about we need to prepare. Right. It's time to prepare. And it was part of this group. It came, Live, Love and Flourish gave us the early signals of the pandemic action on the enrichment management side. But the most, the, most of the work was not done on that. Most of the work was done on, on, on basically nutrition, which is there's a very cool thing that, that, that came out of there that my, my whole interest in the, in, in, in what's happening with sugar in the world come, came from the, from that area. I'm very passionate about, and I learned a lot about how harmful sugar can become and, and how harmful it is to almost every person in this country. And I didn't realize this before. I have a huge sweet tooth. I, I love sweets. So, and I, my grandmother was a confectioner and she owned candy stores and she was a great baker. And so I was surrounded by sweets growing up. So I developed, well, first of all, I was a very popular child because of it, but I, I also, I also developed a big sweet tooth and I didn't realize how harmful sugar can be to your health and well-being. So that's something that I, I discovered through the work. But live long and flourish, just doing research into understanding what sugar does to you. And so that, that was a big aha moment for me. And, and it was a big revelation for me because it had a big impact on my life after that. So that, that was very interesting. Same thing with exercise, with, with everything that has to do with physical activity. So I changed the way I exercise because of that, right? Like I, I never thought that doing exercise on balance, right? Most people do strength and stretching and things like that. I actually do balance exercise as well because it's one of the most important things once you start aging. Actually, balance is extremely important because one of the main determinants of people's deter strong deterioration in health is falls. And a lot of these falls are actually preventable if you have better balance. And people don't spend their life practicing balance. They lift weights, they stretch, they, they run, but they, they don't really do balance exercises. It's not very common. And they should be. It's actually extremely important. That I learned the group, for example, right? So there are a lot of things that came out of this that were really great. And these are people from the, the way it, it happened, just like the computer club that Steve Jobs and everybody else used to hang out. They, they did the same. They came up with ideas and people were talk, talking about it and then poking holes and try to see what's valid and what's not valid and what's worth taking to the next level. Well, tonight when I'm at 24 Hour Fitness, I'll, I'll be on the BOSU ball lifting a little bit. So with that, with everything you're doing, what's exciting you the most? Wow. <laughs> people, the teams, the people who are doing the thing, right? So, so the opportunity to work with, collaborate with like really amazing people that are motivated, that want to, to do good in the world. The ability to make a, a real impact on people's lives. I started doing more philanthropy recently and it, it's amazing because it's, it gives you an opportunity to connect with people in levels that are deeper than anything else that I've experienced before. And I think that Creating new products, creating new services, doing it in an environment of people who are capable with the one big intent of helping others, right? The idea of like, how can you make an impact on people's lives? And there's something very addictive about being able to make an impact that is increasingly larger on larger and larger number of people, because then it's, oh, I want to help more people and I want to make them deeper. I want to help them in a way that is more profound and more important for their lives. And it's only possible to do with great people around you. 
that are capable and motivated. But when you start doing it, you want to do more and more of it. And you, you understand that there are certain things that, because I, I spend my, most of my life doing it in business, but you start understanding at one point that there are certain things that you can help with that business cannot solve, that you need to have different means to solve them because business doesn't solve everything. And this is, I think, where philanthropy comes to play because I think that there are a lot of challenges in our world that cannot be solved by just merely doing good business, right? And I think that like, so that excites me a lot. Like I'm learning, I'm it's like the early stages of trying to, to use resources to help people and, and do, it, do this at scale. And I'm very excited about the ability to do it. It's very motivating. It's something that I, I want to, to learn more and more on how to do and how to do better. And with that, any key takeaways, any last minute things you, you'd like to tell our audience before wrapping things up, currently working on goals that before we sign off? Yeah, look, I mean, the, what comes to mind immediately is this whole notion of, of tikkun olam. Tikkun olam is a, is a concept in, in Jewish philosophy that is very ancient concept that if you translate it in simple world, it says, it's simple words, it says fixing the world. Tikkun olam, just free translation is fixing the world. And my mom taught me that concept and, and nourished me with that concept. And, and the concept basically means we should fix the world because the world needs fixing. And that's it. For no other reason. Right? There, there's something big in going out there and say, here's a problem that the world has, and I'm going to go and fix it because it needs fixing. And that's it. For no other reason. Right? And I think that what makes us special into human beings, I think that once you strip out all the other incentives, right, that cause people to do certain things, and you start doing things just because they need to be done, there's something amazingly empowering in that. If you ask me what's the ultimate meditation, and the ultimate place of Zen for me is doing things because they need to be done, because it's the right thing to do. And that's it, right? And that's extremely powerful because when you go through all these steps of getting things done because, fill the blank, and you get, to the, you get them done and then you get the because and then you're just like, okay, and then what? <laughs> then you understand that the most fulfilling thing is doing things because they need to be done. And that's super fulfilling. And for me, that's the, the most important thing. Ron, if anyone wants to read your Medium articles, your blogs, find out what you're doing, what's the best way to go about doing it? Right now, I'm, I'm trying to be more on social media. So try to be more on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on some, some of the, these other places and, and write. I, I try to continue writing. So there's uh, some new write-ups that I, I, I do online. So I, I write some, for some for known publications and some more on Medium and other places like that. But I'll try to be better in, in really communicating in social media where to find some of these places because I do it because I think it needs to be done rather than because it needs to be read. But I think that if you look for, start looking for me more on, on Twitter, on Instagram, maybe on TikTok, which I need to be on and I'm not on yet, but I'll be there more, more often. And just to just share with the world what I learned over the years, because I, I enjoy teaching and I enjoy sharing what I learned. And I hope I can help some people see what I learned after years of doing things. Fantastic. So I got a little homework. I'll go online, get your Twitter and that. We'll put in the show notes for our listeners out there. And I mean, before wrapping up, I just really want to thank you, Ron. You gave a ton of great information and well, I'm going to work on the balance workout. There's a lot that you mentioned. I'm going to put double down on smiling. And, awesome. and, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our listeners, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to have a conversation. And with that, Ron, thank you for being the guest this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.